Good evening, and welcome to sermon number two in our Wednesday worship summer series, focusing on the villains of the Bible. Tonight, Lord willing, we will draw our attention to a very important villain in Old Testament biblical history, and that villain is known as Pharaoh. Now, before we get started, we need to understand that Pharaoh is just a title, it's not a name. Just like the Caesars in Rome were the emperors, the Egyptian kings were known as the pharaohs, which translated means great house. And that being said, we must also be aware that there were many other pharaohs mentioned in scripture. We have Joseph's pharaoh, a relatively good Egyptian king who was kind to Joseph and later to Israel. Then there was also the pharaoh who ruled after Joseph and the patriarchs died. This one was not so kind. This is the one that made the burden on the Israelites heavy, turning them into slaves in Egypt. This is the one that ordered the murder of the firstborn male babies of Israel. We all remember that Pharaoh. In addition to him, there are many other Pharaohs that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, specifically during the writings of the prophets. But probably most famously or infamously, we have the Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus during the time of the ten plagues, during the time of the first Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. And it's this Pharaoh that takes the role of tonight's villain. Now, to set the context for our examination of these events of the Exodus surrounding Pharaoh, I'm going to read a summary provided in the book of Acts chapter 7 by Stephen, a deacon of the Jerusalem church and the first martyr for, for Christ recorded in scripture. So please turn in your Bible to the book of Acts and I read along silently as I read along from verses 1 to 17. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, where he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. He would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. 
Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So we see Joseph's brothers jealous of him sell him into slavery. But God being with him, because God had a larger purpose for him to be in Egypt, he, through various hardships, rises to power in Egypt and gets put into a position to keep Israel alive during a great famine that was getting ready to strike the land. The account in Genesis comes to a close as Acts 7.18 records for us, A new king in Egypt arose, and he did not know Joseph. Now, as previously stated, this isn't the Pharaoh that we're dealing with tonight, but he is a villain in his own right. So we're going to spend a brief amount of time discussing him because he sets the stage for our Pharaoh and what's to come in tonight's message. Reading on in Acts 7, starting in verse 18, we read, There arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds." When he was 40 years old, he came in, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended, an, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. The word of the Lord. So we see that by the grace of God, Moses was saved by the forced infanticide and was taken in to Pharaoh's house. And he was, quote, instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. The text went on to say that after 40 years of living as an Egyptian, he went to visit his brothers, was incensed by their harsh treatment by the Egyptians. So Moses killed the Egyptian when he witnessed the man beating an Israelite slave. As we just read, after this was discovered, he fled from Pharaoh to Midian, where he stayed for another 40 years. But make no mistake, he was considered an Egyptian, as we read in the original account in Exodus 2. Speaking of Moses, the daughters of Midian say, quote, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds, end quote. So, in all observable ways, Moses was an Egyptian. Next, he married Zipporah, one of the daughters. He had two sons by her and stayed in the land of Midian, like it says, for another 40 years. So, brothers and sisters, according to Exodus 2.23-25, it was during that time, those 40 years, that the king of Egypt died, the first pharaoh, 
and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. Verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Please bow your heads as I pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the reading of your holy word. I thank you for providing it to us. I pray that you would enlighten us through it by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would have us learn from it, that you would encourage us through it, and in all things that we would honor and glorify you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt for 400 years cried out to the Lord. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Continuing on in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, we see, Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, to Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And that sets the stage for our own villain tonight, for Pharaoh to make his entrance. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, as he introduces himself to Moses from the burning bush, mentions our Pharaoh in Exodus 3.19. He says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. But then in Exodus 4.21, God says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So even before we have any recorded dialogue spoken by Pharaoh, we have Jehovah telling Moses to go to a wicked king that will not listen to him, that he will need to be compelled to listen by a mighty hand or by violence, and that after Moses performed many miraculous signs and wonders in order to convince Pharaoh, God himself will harden Pharaoh's heart, resulting in his refusal to let the people go. If that doesn't have your head spinning, just wait. It gets even better than that. So please now, at this time, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5 and follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Exodus 5, 1 and 2 say this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
So Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh, and I won't let Israel go. And brothers and sisters, that's just what the Lord said he'd say, and so he did. Then Pharaoh accused Moses of wasting his time and made Israel's workload even tougher. Then Moses goes to God and complains, saying, Now I told Pharaoh what you wanted me to, and things are worse. So in chapter 6 of Exodus, the Lord explains that this is exactly what he wanted to happen, in order that he could show his power in display against Pharaoh. He again tells Moses his covenant name of Yahweh, I am who I am, and explains what his plan is. So in Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 10, we have this. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the body of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I give it to you for your possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Now we're going to move to chapter 7 and see how the Lord gives Moses, again, a little bit more insight into what his plan is going to be. 7, 2 to 4 says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So we see in chapter 6 there, in chapter 7, we begin to see the Lord revealing his plan to Moses, and he's explaining why what's going to happen needs to happen. And now we begin also to see Moses' interaction with Pharaoh. And more importantly, we're going to see Yahweh's interaction with Pharaoh. Then we're going to witness Pharaoh's words, his decisions, and his actions in relation to what's happening to him. So buckle up your seatbelts because here we go. Turn to chapter 7 in Exodus and we're going to survey uh, the next uh, number of chapters to get a sense of what's going on uh, with Pharaoh as he deals with Moses and Aaron and the Lord. So in chapter 7, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and perform a miracle. Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent. 
then you know the rest of the story. Pharaoh gets his sorcerers to do the same thing by their secret arts. And even though Aaron's serpent went over and ate the magician's serpent, quote, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, Exodus 7, 13. Then, brothers and sisters, begins the ten plagues. The blood water, chapter 7. The frogs, the gnats, the flies, chapter 8. The death of the livestock, the boils, the hail, chapter 9. The locusts, the darkness, chapter 10. And then the death of the firstborn, chapters 11 to 12. So we are going to briefly discuss each plague and notice Pharaoh's actions and reactions. So we begin with plague number one, turning the Nile River into blood. This occurs in verses 14 to 25 of chapter 7. So Moses and Aaron strike the Nile with the staff and water turns into blood. But again, the sorcerers of Egypt are able to do the same thing and Pharaoh does not repent. And verse 25 goes out of its way to say, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. After this first plague, the Lord kindly and patiently gives Pharaoh a whole week to think about it. But no. But no. So that takes us to plague number two, the frogs, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Thus says the Lord, let my people go, or... I will plague your country with frogs. Pharaoh says no. The frogs come. His magicians do the same. But this time, Pharaoh acts. He begs Moses to plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs on the condition that he will let the people go. But once the frogs are stopped, he hardened his heart and does not keep his promise as the Lord had said. Next we have the gnats. It's the same story. Verses 16 to 19. The Lord's command, Pharaoh's refusal to obey, so that Aaron strikes the dust of the ground, and here come the gnats. They're on man, they're on beast, they're all over Egypt. And interestingly, this time, we see in the text that the Egyptian sorcerers could not replicate the miracle. And even they... Even they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Next we have plague number four, the flies, verses 20 to 32 in chapter 8. The Lord says, let Israel go. Pharaoh says, no. The Lord says, I will send flies. But this time, the flies are only going to be on the Egyptians and in the Egyptian land. Not in Goshen, where the Israelites were dwelling. So now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a division. There's a separation between Egypt and Israel. So now there's a purpose clearly seen by all. And here, during this plague, we see Pharaoh's first attempt at bargaining with God. It's sort of a halfway repentance. In verse 25, we read, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within this land. So Moses said, No, uh-uh. We must go at least three days' journey out of Egypt. So Pharaoh says, Sure, anything. Just get rid of the flies. 
So Moses prays, Yahweh removes the flies, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart this time again and did not let the people go. We come to chapter 9, and we have the death of the Egyptian livestock. Same story. The Lord says, let them go. Pharaoh says, no. All the Egyptian livestock die, but only the Egyptian livestock die. Again, there's a distinction made between God's people and Pharaoh's people. But, as you would expect, the text again says, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Plague number 6, verses 8 to 12. Boils, painful sores erupt on man and on animal, even on the Egyptian magicians, so bad that they couldn't even stand up before Moses. So God is now striking the magicians also. But, as expected, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord has spoken to Moses. Plague 7, hail. Verses 13 to 35 in chapter 9. In fact, please turn to chapter 9 if you weren't there already, as I'm going to read the entire account, because I believe that things take a slight turn in the text. So please follow along as I read verses 13 to 35 and pay special attention to what the Lord says, especially in verses 14 to 16, which should sound very familiar and should shed some light on God's motive, purpose, and plan regarding Pharaoh. Exodus 9, 13 to 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and would not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, and on every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down from the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. 
The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plea with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, as you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured out upon the earth. But the Pharaoh, but when Pharaoh saw that the, man, the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. We see here that the Lord gives a chance to the Egyptians to come in to protect himself from the hail. But it says that the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians were hardened, so they did not listen. Even though Pharaoh claimed that he sinned, he acknowledged it, and he promised to let the people go, his heart was hardened yes, yet again. So now we're up to verse 10, the chapter 10, and we hear about plague number 8, the locusts. Verses 1 and 2 say, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, here, God shares with Moses and with us his motives, which were, number one, to show his signs to polytheistic Egypt, and number two, to reveal himself to Israel after 400 years of silence. So, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, threatened him with the locusts. Pharaoh's servants counseled him to finally give in and let Israel go. So he calls them back and tries to cut another deal with them. Again, this is an example of not true full repentance or full obedience. See, he tries to keep some cards left for himself. He tries to keep some pride left for himself and tells them that only the men can go to worship the Lord. The women and children must stay in Egypt. Well, as you know, men can't not give God conditions. So here come the locusts. And then we read Pharaoh's anxious plea in Exodus 10, 16 to 20. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then comes plague number nine, the darkness. The Lord describes this darkness as a darkness that can be felt. A darkness so dark that no one could see one another and no Egyptian left their house for three days. But Israel had light and could see. So Pharaoh told Moses, 
all the people can finally go, but they just can't take their animals with them. Now Moses needs animals for sacrifice, so of course he refuses. And Pharaoh gets angry and takes back his offer because the Lord had hardened his heart. And so we come to the final plague. Please turn to Exodus 11 and follow along in your Bible as I read verses 1 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out and away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her, her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servant and in the sight of the people. Verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go in the midst of the Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there never has been nor ever will be again but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so we finally come to the Passover, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. This is the act of faith for Israel, the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts so that the slayer might pass them over. This is the punishment for the unbelief of Pharaoh and Egypt and all the hosts of the Egyptian gods. So the Israelites kill the Passover lamb. They sprinkle its blood on the doorpost, observe the first Passover meal, and at midnight, Jehovah struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Chapter 12, verses 30 to 32, says this, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go, Get out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And as Israelites were making their way out toward the Red Sea, we know, again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened one last time. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 4 to 8, we read this. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5. 
when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And you know the rest. Moses parts the Red Sea. The Egyptians think they have them cornered. But no, the Israelites make their way safely across on dry land. Pharaoh's army follow them in. Moses brings the sea back down upon them. And Pharaoh's army perishes. And so, that is the Reader's Digest version of the story of Moses and Pharaoh. The Lord delivered Israel from 400 plus years of bondage by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and a hardened heart. Could the Lord have softened Pharaoh's heart? Could he have had mercy on him? Could he have led Pharaoh to willingly and peaceably flee the Israelite slaves? I suppose so. But since the Lord always has his glory and the good of his people in mind, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart against Israel and against himself was what would have and did bring him maximum glory and maximum good for his people, both then and now. You see, buried in Exodus 9, remember I told you we had a glimpse into the Lord's motive in dealing with Pharaoh? Buried in Exodus 9, verse 16, in speaking to Pharaoh, he says, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And this verse should be very familiar to us as it is quoted and used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 to say the very same thing regarding God's election. In fact, please turn in your Bibles to Romans 9. And read along silently as I start reading in verse 13. Apostle Paul writes, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What justice, I'm sorry, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Yet you will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his no power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Amen. 
Now time does not allow a fleshed out discussion on God's election, but suffice it to say, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was key to the Exodus being as God glorifying as it needed to be. And it was a picture of God's election to salvation and to damnation. That being said, let me be absolutely clear. God mercies whom he wants and hardens who he wants, but God does not, does not cause or make anyone to sin. He does not tempt anyone to do evil. The Lord does not harden an otherwise willing heart. Let me repeat that. The Lord does not harden an otherwise willing heart. What he does do is use the natural inclination of an already evil heart. In fact, Jeremiah 17.9 is clear that every unregenerated human heart is already wicked, is already depraved, is already desperately sick, and oftentimes is not understandable. Due to the fallen nature that all humans inherit after Adam's sin, the sinner, born dead in trespasses and sins, has the natural proclivity toward selfishness, toward pride, toward ambition, toward lust, toward violence, and toward murder. That is all of us in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22, Paul writes, For in Adam all die. So, as children of wrath, it is the nature of the natural man to do evil. In fact, it is the restraining grace of God that keeps us all from greater acts of evil. This is illustrated perfectly in Genesis 20 when the Lord informs Abimelech, king of Gerar, that it was he, the Lord, who kept him from sinning against him. He says, it is me who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Uh, if you recall, uh, that was when Abraham lied about Sarah, his wife, by telling people she was his sister. And so Abimelech would have pursued her if the Lord hadn't restrained him from doing so. And this restraining grace, brothers and sisters, is what keeps men and women from being as evil as they could be left to their own devices. With that in mind, therefore, we see in the case of Pharaoh the Lord did not restrain this man's evil intentions in wanting to defy God and in wanting to puff out his chest in pride and wanting to keep for himself the slave labor that the Israelites were to him. To some degree, the Lord did this with Joseph's brothers as well. He let them fulfill their selfish desires in getting rid of Joseph, but he did restrain them from carrying out their first plan, which was to murder him but they carry out a lesser plan by selling him into slavery. The Lord also did this with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and also the king of Assyria. He used their natural desire and bloodlust to conquer Israel and use them as his punishing rod for his people. But then he turned around and punished the king of Babylon and the king of Assyria for their pride and their cruelty in carrying out his plan. The Lord did this with the Romans, with the Jews, with Herod, and with Pilate, and with Judas Iscariot. As they carried out the most heinous sin ever committed on the face of the earth, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, they did want to commit this sin. Yes, they wanted to do it. They decided to do it. 
and they're paying for it now in an eternity in hell. But did God ordain it? You listen to the words of Acts 4, 27 to 28 and determine the answer for yourself. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see? These were all villains, and they were all responsible for their actions. Their hearts were hardened, and God's will and pleasure was to harden them. And that is His prerogative, because He mercies whom He wills, and He hardens whom He wills. And no one can question Him, because He, as the potter, has the right to do with the clay whatever He wants to do with it just like we read in Romans chapter 9. So, tonight we have Pharaoh lifted to power in order to show God's superior power. Nebuchadnezzar knew this after the Lord humiliated him, the most powerful king of his day. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon's own account of how the Lord dealt with him in Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I believed the Most High, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, and for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Daniel 4, 34 to 35. See, this was written by a man who ruled the known world at a time where the pharaohs in Egypt were nothing but shadows of their former selves. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, proclaims that it is he, Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, that rules and reigns over all forever and ever. Amen. In our text tonight, ladies and gentlemen, dealing with the hardened Pharaoh, his hardened heart, we see, number one, that the Lord God patiently endured his evil for so long. And number two, he temporarily punishes him for his sins. And number three, he publicly shames the God of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, the many gods of Egypt, as he does this. And all this hardening is done in stark contrast to the mercying he has done to Moses and to Israel. In this case, we see Moses as an example of God's mercy and enabling and granting of his faith, and we see it by Moses' actions. This is picked up in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Please turn over there. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, as Moses has mentioned, discussing the heroes of the faith. Verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Moses, a man of faith, a faith that was mercy to him by God. We ask, why Moses and not Pharaoh? Again, Romans 9.20, who are we to answer back to God? Look back at the things written about Moses in Hebrews 11. Ask yourself, what would I have done if I were in that situation? If you do the math, he was 80 years old when he went into Pharaoh the first time to ask him to let the people go. 80. But, as faithful as Moses was, and as we can learn from him, tonight is about the other guide. The other guy, not Moses, who was in a positive example of faith, but Pharaoh, the villain. What can we learn from Pharaoh? Listen to what pagan Philistine priests say to their people in 1 Samuel 6, 6. Quote, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? You see, that's not Samuel speaking to the people of God. That's a pagan priest speaking to the Philistines. You see, word spread all over the world about Pharaoh's defeat at the hand of the Lord and his hardened heart as the reason for it. So this is number one proof that God knew what he was doing in the putting Pharaoh to public shame. And number two, even unbelie unbelievers take away the lesson that we should all learn from Pharaoh's hardening. Brothers and sisters, do not harden your hearts against God and his word. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 to 19 refers to the Christian sorry, refers the Christian to Psalm 95, which in turn refers the Old Testament believer to Exodus 17, to the event that occurred soon after the exodus out of Egypt, just after the Lord had provided manna from heaven for them to eat, in the midst of the Lord's miraculous deliverance of his people from Egypt, they continued to grumble and complain and demonstrate their unbelief at the water from the rock at Meribah. Please turn back in Hebrews to chapter 3 as I read verses 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned because whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You know the story. They could not enter the promised land because of unbelief. After seeing all the miracles that brought them out of Egypt, they complained and grumbled and rebelled against the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, be aware. We have the same capacity for wickedness and unbelief as Old Testament, Old Testament Israel had. We have the same capacity for wickedness and unbelief as Old Testament Israel had. The Bible is amazing and it's so careful to paint fallen men and women in accurate and a painfully accurate way. We, we read the story of Moses, how he killed an Egyptian. We know the story of David, how he committed adultery and then murder and then tried to cover it up. We see the disciples as they walked with Jesus for three years and still argued pridefully about which one among them was the greatest, how they spoke presumptuously and even deserted Jesus when he was arrested. Folks, on your own, take time to read through Hebrews 11, the Heroes of the Faith chapter, and look up some of the events of these men's lives in the Old Testament, and you will see how graceful our Lord is, how He takes fallen men and women, saves them, and does wonderful works through them, yet they still have a bent towards sin. So, Paul's admonition to us is, Look carefully then how you walk, or walk circumspectly, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5, 15-16. Paul also tells us in Galatians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6 that there are deeds of the flesh and sinful practices that demonstrate unbelief, demonstrate a hard heart, and can demonstrate and speak to us about our spiritual condition, which may be unsaved if we practice these dark deeds. Now, Christian, I need to be clear. If you've been mercied by God, if you've been born again, you will repent of your unbelief. You will not practice the deeds of the flesh. When you do sin, you will confess and repent and be forgiven. Because if you are in Christ, you are safe in Christ. None can snatch you out of his hand, and he will raise you up on the last day as he promised he would. Amen? But be careful, because these warnings are actual warnings. They help the true believer to walk circumspectly, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They help the believer to strive for holiness and to put to death the old man to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So again, to be clear, a true believer in Jesus Christ, one who has been saved by grace through faith and who is walking in the good works set before him, cannot and will not fall away. And the true believer, furthermore, will heed these warnings and will walk accordingly by grace. Amen? So, 
we draw our attention once more to tonight's villain, to Pharaoh. Don't pity him because the all-wise sovereign Lord hardened his heart. Pharaoh's natural inclination was bent towards sin. It was for self-preservation, for fame, for power, for wealth, for violence. The Lord withheld his mercy from Pharaoh and hardened his already sinful heart to do what deep down he already wanted to do, which was to get rid of this troublemaker Moses by making his own people angry at him due to their heavier workload. He already wanted to suppress this mutiny coming from his slave labor. And worst of all, most of all, as a living God, he wanted to magnify his name above the name of the true and living God, the God of all creation, Yahweh, the great I Am. So quickly, in closing, what do we learn from the actions of Pharaoh? Well, I have five points of application taken from the decisions of Pharaoh as well as from Moses. Bad examples versus good example. Number one, do not harden your heart against God's word. When scripture confronts you through the spirit and through brothers and sisters counsel about sin in your life, listen, read, reflect, and repent. Be quick to hear slow to speak. Do not harden your heart against God's word. Application point number two, value Christ. Value Christ more than the passing pleasures of sin and don't seek to avoid the cross you are called to bear as disciple. This point has two parts to it. Look to Christ, deny self, look to eternal rewards rather to temporal fixes like Moses did. And second part is, look to Christ, deny self, value suffering for him over and above the comfort and ease of this life. The riches of Egypt that Moses thought nothing of. And he chose rather to suffer the reproach of Christ with his people. Brothers and sisters, Christ is infinitely worth it. Point number three, obey God. Obey God in the good times as well as in the bad times. See, Pharaoh seemed to relent and obey when the plagues were happening, only to turn away once the storms had passed. Once things calmed down, he went back to disobedience. Christian, we need to trust and obey when it is sunny as well as when the storm is raging. So, rejoice in prosperity and rejoice in pain. Trust and lean on him during trial as well as during times of tranquility. And most importantly, don't try and cut a deal with the Lord like Pharaoh did. For example, don't say, I will obey you, Lord, if you give me this. I'll, I'll listen to you, Lord, if you take that away. I will trust you, Lord, if you... No, you can't cut a deal with the Lord. God commands our obedience at all times and under all circumstances. God commands our obedience at all times and under all circumstances. Application point number four, worship God as the sovereign Lord of creation. Worship God as the sovereign Lord of creation. Acknowledge his right to mercy and harden as he sees fit. Yes, we can thank and honor him for the hardening of the retrobate just as well as we can thank him for the mercying of the elect. If we hold his glory as our number one desire, 
we can rightly thank him and praise him for his election of sinners for salvation and his hardening of those whom he doesn't choose to save. This should serve to make us all the more thankful that he chose us through no goodness or no merit or no deserving of our own for salvation just because he chose to do so and we thank him for his great mercy shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, point number five, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to all faithfully knowing that God will mercy his elect and draw them unto Christ and save them. Knowing that he will give mercy to those whom he will give mercy. We need to be faithful in sharing the love of Christ and the good news of the gospel with all. And it is up to him to draw them to himself. Brothers and sisters, I know it was a long message tonight. I hope and pray that tonight's sermon was uh, beneficial to you. I hope that by studying the choices of Pharaoh and of Moses, it has blessed you and encouraged you and convicted you through the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for studying God's word with us. And please, at this time, bow your head as I ask God's blessing on you. Dear Lord, I thank you for allowing us to open up your word to study it, and through your Holy Spirit to understand it. I pray, O oh Father, that anything that I had said that may have been off the mark, that you would have the people quickly forget. I pray that anything that was of you and could be used by you, I pray that you would use it mightily, that you would convert those who do not know you, that you would have those that are compromising turn to you in repentance and serve you with a whole heart, that those that are struggling with unbelief, that you would grant them a measure of faith to endure during this time. I pray most of all that you will be honored and glorified by what we do in the fulfilling of your word. And all these things I pray in your son's precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.